Welcome back, everyone. This is the Clinical Signs Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. We're at episode 16. And as I said last week in the discussion about hypoxemia, hypoxia, and ventilation, today's podcast will be about pulse oximetry. And this is really a two-part episode. Best to li- listen to that ventilation, hypoxia, hypoxemia episode first, and then listen to this episode if you come across them. All right, pulse oximetry became very popular during COVID for human beings. You could just pop one on your finger. I think you could buy them relatively cheaply from Amazon. But in veterinary medicine, they're a very useful tool, especially when we're monitoring patients under anesthesia or we have a patient in shock or we just have a question about what's going on with an animal. So it's a quick and easy diagnostic test. And what is a pulse ox or a pulse oximeter, pulse ox for short. It's a medical device. Usually they're handheld and portable, and they measure two important physiologic parameters. The SpO2, which is the percentage of hemoglobin, primarily oxyhemoglobin that is saturated with oxygen, and also the pulse rate per minute. And how does the unit work? So it's helpful to understand how the unit works because then you'll have a little bit better understanding of what it's doing. The unit works by emitting a red and infrared light via uh, an LED, which is a light-emitting diode in the probe. And the probe has two components. There's the uh, emitter, the LED light, and then there's a a transceiver or receiver opposite that. And the probe penetrates the LED light, the uh, red and infrared light, uh, when it's attached properly to the proper anatomic location, it penetrates the tissue, and um, that LED light, uh, the blood is also part of that tissue. So some light is absorbed in that process, and then some passes through. Now, the sensor on the opposite side of the light of the LED receives the red and the infrared light passing through the tissues and the blood. Then the unit does some sophisticated calculations, and it subtracts the light delivered from the light received and converts this to a number that you see on the screen for the SpO2 and the pulse rate. Pulse oximeter works by sending that red and infrared light into the arteries. So you're actually getting an arterial measurement. It's not a measurement of the venous oxygenation, partial oxygenation. It's a measurement of the arterial oxygenation. And if you could see a waveform of the pulse oximeter's measurements, it would look like an up and down sine wave because the remember if you go back to the podcast where we talked about what the pulse actually is the pulse is pulsatile it means it's it go the pressure rises and then the pressure drops and then the pressure rises and then pressure drops so if you could see that waveform from the pulse ox that's what it would look like the measurements that we're getting are arterial oxygenation in percent SpO2, again, we said is the percentage of hemoglobin saturated with oxygen. So in a healthy patient, as we learned on the last podcast, the arterial SpO2 should be greater than 95 up to 100%. Can't go over 100%. And we learned that because there's approximately 20 grams per deciliter of oxygen in the, in the bloodstream, in the arterial side, and when it goes out to the capillaries and is used by the cells, and what's returned back to the heart is uh, about 15 grams per deciliter, and that's basically resting metabolism. The pulse oximeter is an early warning system for hypoxemia. Hypoxemia occurs at 95. The PaO2 is at 80. So anything below a 95 on the pulse oximeter is going to be trouble. 
So the pulse oximeter is an early warning for hypoxemia, which is early warning mean before something that you can actually visualize. So hypoxia may result from hypoxemia, right? Hypoxemia is low oxygen in the blood. Hypoxia is low oxygen generically throughout the body, but also in the cells or tissues. Uh, so hypoxia may result from hypoxemia depending on the severity of several factors such as duration, hemoglobin concentration, and perfusion. Perfusion is is one of those topics you don't necessarily think about until you are faced with a situation, and perfusion means how well is blood getting into given tissue or limb, as an example, and actually also how well that fluid, that blood is coming back out well that blood is flowing in a circulatory system, right? Because it's coming from the arterial side through the capillary bed and back to the venous side, which returns to the heart. So hypoxia may be visualized, I said, as cyanosis, which is a blue to bluish coloring of the mucous membranes. And mucous membranes can be found in many sites on an animal's body. Chiefly, we look in the mouth at the mucous membranes in the mouth and the tongue. Uh, you can also see mucous membranes are, uh, on the inside of the eyelids and the genitals, if they happen to be available. Or primarily, it's going to be the mouth. With darkly pigmented animals such as chows, it may be difficult to visualize cyanosis. So any dog with a dark tint to the skin in their mouth is going to be very difficult to actually visualize cyanosis. And in patients that are anemic, the FPO2 yet may still be 100%, but the animal can be hypoxic. Remember that the SpO2 is only measuring the percentage of hemoglobin, uh, oxygen-bound hemoglobin. So it doesn't actually tell you how much the uh, red blood count is, which is a whole other topic. But uh, basically, an anemic patient can still have an SpO2 of 100%. And the animal could be hypoxic. So you also have to look at mucous membranes as an example. Uh, again, if it's not a darkly pigmented animal very pale mucous membranes so white mucous membranes would be that the uh, would be a a simple clinical sign showing you that the animal is anemic pulse ox also provides a warning for bradycardia which is a low heart rate tachycardia which is a uh, higher or elevated heart rate and decreased perfusion any interruption in the blood flow is going to obviously impact how well the pulse oximeter actually works and if blood is not flowing which can happen in certain disease states, or if there's a tourniquet on a limb, for example, pulse oximetry will not work. So those are, there are three factors to, um, to be aware of. So when you're going to use a pulse ox, you really need to make an assessment of proper functioning. And this is probably one of the biggest problems clinical medicine is how well is the equipment checked, and it should be checked before every usage. So number one, to assess the unit. Turn the unit on, and you want to visualize the red light from that probe, from the one half of the probe. Now, in veterinary medicine, a lot of the probes that we use are actually clipped. It's not the finger model that you see on um, Amazon. And you want to make both. You want to make sure that both parts of the probe are free from any blood or organic matter. And I would, at this moment, refer you back to the user's manual to find the proper. Uh, cleanser for that. I just don't want to say use this or use that because, you know, you could dissolve some of the glues holding the unit together. Then you want to place the probe on non-pigmented skin or mucous membranes, especially the tongue, lip, or toe web of an animal. Again, it's going to depend on the clip, the, the opening of the clip, 
And what you want is you want the tissue, you want to open up the clip. Let's just use an example of a clothespin for a second, I think for visualization purposes. When you squeeze the back portion of the uh, clothespin, the, the clipping portion, the, the portion that you're going to use to hang on a clothesline or even a binder clip, same difference, is going to open up. And you basically want the each piece of that probe as parallel to each other as is possible. So you want to get the right amount of tissue in between those sides of the clip. And then use an appropriately sized probe for the patient. So that's what I'm referring to. If the probe is too large, the sensors may not line up, or if it's too small, it may cause vasoconstriction or venous pulses, which again can can cause a false reading or a or no reading whatsoever. So practicing is going to be the most important. Now, what I would say is you can also, as long as you know that you're a healthy person, you can take that probe and assess its functioning because relatively simply. If you're a healthy person and you stick the probe on you, number one, it's very easy to, to check your own pulse, right? We talked about taking the radial pulse with a couple of your fingers and you can watch and read the digital output on the pulse oximeter to make sure that it's functioning properly. And then again, if you have no problems with your ventilation system, your lungs or your blood and of course, that's a very simple thing. You should be able to have. You should basically have a, um, a pulse. A you should have a an SpO two of greater than ninety five. Okay, so troubleshooting. Troubleshooting is going to be very important. Again, I refer you back to the ventilation hypoxemia and hypoxia episode. So, what happens if you get no signal on the pulse oximeter? So, number one, you need to check the probe for proper functioning. I said you can put it on you as a quick check to make sure that the unit is functioning. If it's a uh, freestanding unit and it doesn't plug into an outlet, then you want to make sure the battery is charged or you have spare batteries around. And then reposition. If if you're concerned that the probe is not working, you can do that relatively quickly. And then reposition the probe. You need to find a place that is not darkly pigmented or cold. Again, check perfusion of the patient. You have to have adequate perfusion. That's blood flow for the pulse oximeter to work. You obviously can reposition. Any poor perfusion that may be caused by such things as low cardiac output, that there's not a lot of blood being pumped out by the left ventricle, that could be due to many reasons, such as hypotension, that's a low blood pressure, hypovolemia, meaning the animal has lost some blood and plasma. Any cardiac arrhythmias, we had touched on that before. If the, if the heart's not properly functioning, if the electrical conduction of the heart is not proper, and you have, um, instead of rhythm, you have an arrhythmia, you, you have an abnormal sequence of beats. That means that there's not going to be proper time for the ventricles to fill, well, specifically the left ventricle, but it's probably going to affect the entire heart. You're not going to have enough filling time, not going to have enough blood to fill the left ventricle. And then when the left ventricle is scheduled to by electricity stimulated to contract, it's not going to push out as much blood. That would be low cardiac output, basically. Uh, cardiac arrest, meaning that there's lack of a heartbeat, right? And any good anesthetist should have a stethoscope with them because remember I said that the pulse is not the same as the heart rate we want it to be. Hopefully it is. But you also need to put a stethoscope on the patient to verify that the heart is functioning properly. Any sort of shock could be septic shock and hypothermia, which is again is extraordinarily common in an anesthetized patient. So any animal that's shivering or shaking that is going to impact the functioning of the pulse oximeter. So you want to make sure that the patient is properly warmed.
light. Any ambient light can interfere with the signal, so you want to shield the probe. So one of the things that you can do is you can put the receiving probe up facing the ceiling because most of the light we use is coming down, and that will shield that sensor from uh, extraneous light. The red light will be going up or shooting up or whatever you want us, however you want to call that. But putting that receiver portion facing up is going to minimize the amount of light getting in. Any movement, I mentioned shivering is going to interfere with, with probe function. You need to warm the patient if possible or increase the anesthesia if the patient is light because, again, movement from a patient may not just be cold. They may be moving because they're feeling something. The fifth cause, so that was five causes so far. We did, you check the probe for proper functioning is one. Number two, check perfusion. Number three, uh, ambient lights getting and interfering with the signal. Four is any movement from the animal. And number five is vasoconstriction. Again, that can be caused by shock because the body's going to, remember I mentioned homeostasis. In homeostasis with shock, the body's going to do multiple things such as increase the heart rate because it wants to keep up the blood pressure. So the kidneys, let's say, and the brain and the heart itself are way more important than a finger. So what you're going to get is in the periphery, out in the limbs, you're going to get vasoconstriction because blood is going to be shunted into the core to get to the heart to keep the perfusion up to the brain and kidneys, brain and kidneys as examples. There's certain drugs such as dexmedetomidine or xylazine, which cause a, a vasoconstriction. And it's extremely hard to measure a pulse, use a pulse oximeter on a patient that's receiving dexmedetomidine. You could be using a blood pressure cuff, and if you're downstream from the on the limb from the blood pressure cuff, that's going to, for a relatively short period of time, that is going to cut off the um, that's going to cut off the perfusion to the area where the um, pulse oximeter is attached. So then just reposition. So most of these things are reposition. Although sometimes uh, if the animal is moving, it's either cold or, or the anesthesia is too little. So what can cause a high pulse rate in a patient? Number one would be any anesthetic problem. There might not be enough anesthesia. The animal could be recovering. There may be the animal is feeling pain. And depending on, the, on as an example, drugs that may be administered atropine and ketamine are going to cause tachycardia. So basically, causes of high pulse rate would, would if you dial back to where's the pulse coming from, it's coming from the heart beating and pushing blood out, all these things can cause tachycardia. So there should be some sort of tachycardia. Again, you want to verify. So if you're getting an elevated pulse rate on the pulse oximeter, you're going to, you're going to get your stethoscope, you're going to listen to the patient and then depending on the scenario that you're incorrect it. Any cardiovascular issues, we again, we mentioned hypovolemia, which is shock, any arrhythmia or tachycardia, and then any type of fever or hyperthermia. So if the animal is in an elevated temperature, you're going to get a high pulse rate. And if the animal has a fever, that's because the animal is releasing a tremendous amount of inflammatory mediators, which is stimulating the body and triggering lots of things, and one of them would be a faster heart rate. So causes of a low pulse rate would be bradycardia, which is a low, low heartbeat, decreased heartbeat, too much anesthesia or an overdose of anesthesia. And if you're using gas anesthesia, then it's relatively simple to dial that back and then continuously monitor the animal to make sure that the heart rate is coming up. That's not going to affect the SpO2. Everything we're talking about so far is, is pulse and cardiac heart related. And hypoxemia, there can be multiple causes of hypoxemia. 
such as ventilation or lung problems, equipment issues, oxygen problems. So that, that's quite numerous. We covered that in the last podcast, episode 15, on ventilation, hypoxemia, and hypoxia. And then causes of hypoxemia, which is that SpO2 below 95%. So number one, if you have an anesthetized patient and they have an endotracheal tube, you need to check it because the animal could be intubated into the esophagus and that patient will be waking up relatively quickly probably. Uh, and that's a, I've had several cases where animals were intubated into the esophagus and the patients were still anesthetized for actually a, quite a long period of time. So you would be fooled and surprised and also humidity coming back into the tube. That's a, checking the humidity in a tube is another way. It's not a foolproof way. So it is easy for animals to be intubated into the esophagus. So if you ever have a question, you need to get into that oral cavity at your laryngoscope and pick that tongue up and look back there and verify for sure that that endotracheal tube is in the trachea. The tube could be plugged or kinked. There could be a mucus plug in there or the tube is bent. You could have endobronchial intubation. Endobronchial intubation means that the, the uh, endotracheal tube is too long and it's been pushed down past the carina, which is where the the left and right mainstem bronchi come out, and now your tube is down one of those sides. Basically, the endotracheal tube should run from the snout down to the beginning of the ribs. It should go no further than past the first rib. Uh, the tube could be too small, the animal's not receiving enough oxygen, or there could be excessive dead space. And dead space, remember I talked about there is some air that never really moves on the animal. It moves in and out, it moves back and forth, but it never actually leaves. So you want that, especially this is going to be extremely important in a very small animal. In a larger animal, it's not going to be as quant consequential, but it, it could be. But basically, you want the end of the endotracheal tube to end right at the snout. You don't want it to extend six inches out because that's dead space and that decreases the uh, ability for the animal to get oxygen and then blow off carbon dioxide. So we covered uh, check the endotracheal tube, now check the patient. You want to make sure that the lung is being aerated, that there's good expansion in the thorax. You want to check the respiratory rate. You want to make sure that there's, uh, there's no uh, excess pressure on the thorax. If there's any compression on the thorax, now again, it's going to depend on the patient's position. But if the animal is in dorsal recumbency and the animal is a heavy animal and the head is tilted down, the intestines are going to be pushing down on that thorax. So if, if that's a problem, then you need to get that animal either level or uh, you, you need to get the abdomen down slightly. That will take some pressure off the diaphragm. There could be lung collapse or pulmonary atelectasis, which I had briefly mentioned before. Atelectasis can affect the entire lung or can only affect a portion of one lung. And then there could be a lung pathology, so there could be pneumonia in the patient. You want to check your equipment functioning. Again, we, we talked about oxygen and oxygen flow rate. Maybe you have oxygen, but the flow rate is too low. And you want to check your CO2 absorber, any of those granules. If they've turned purple, if the entire CO2 absorber is purple, that's a problem. That means the animal is rebreathing carbon dioxide. Obviously, checking all your equipment prior to any anesthetic event is going to be critical, especially with gas anesthesia, because it's going to be difficult to change out the CO2 canister absorbent material while you have a patient anesthetized. And then you want to check your oxygen supply to make sure it's functioning, especially if you have a central storage 
central oxygen dispensing area, you want to make sure all your gauges are good. So that's pulse oximetry. I think I've covered it actually pretty well. I think the biggest problem is, number one, making sure your equipment is functioning properly. Number two, you want to test it on yourself. Make sure everything is working right. Whenever you're using any piece of equipment, you should always verify. So you should always be checking the animal's mucous membranes. One thing that you can do is check the CRT or capillary refill time in a patient. As long as it's safe to do so, you can gently press, especially above one of the teeth or below the teeth. I usually prefer actually on top, on the maxillary side, on the skull or the animal's mouth. Press down gently on the mucous membranes and you will get blanching. You will get you will actually be physically pushing out the blood from the capillaries. And when you take your finger off, you count one one thousand, two one thousand. And a normal capillary refill time is two seconds, right? So capillaries we talked about are very small blood vessels that interface between the arterial side and the venous side so that cells can get their oxygen and nutrients. And when you press down, you're pushing that blood away. When you release, you're allowing the blood to come back. And two seconds is about right. If it's too long or too slow, then there's a problem. And last podcast, I had mentioned the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. I'm going to put a link back in there. Basically, below 95% on the pulse oximeter, or at, let me start out, at 95 and above, you were above 88 millimeters of mercury of pressure of oxygen in the body, right? Especially that 3% in the plasma that we're using as the proxy for the blood gas, which the pulse oximeter really is is doing. Uh, so therefore, we're assuming that there's enough oxygen in the blood. So anything below 95 and 95 and below, you're going to have below 80 millimeters of mercury of pressure of oxygen. And that's when you start to get hypoxemia and you can get hypoxia as a result. So an SpO2 of 90 is equal to 60 millimeters of mercury of oxygen pressure in the arteries, and that's hypoxia. So at 80, PaO2, P little a O2, at 80 millimeters of mercury, that is a reading on the pulse oximeter of 95, 60 PaO2, 60 millimeters of mercury of P little a O2, that's oxygen, partial pressure of oxygen in the arteries, your SpO2 is 90%. So even at 90%, it's not enough. You're, you're starving that animal's body of oxygen. Then an SpO2 of 75% equals a PaO2 of 40 millimeters of mercury. So that's going to not be consistent with life for very long. So maybe this was a little bit of a technical podcast. I think it's a good follow-up for anybody that heard the first podcast. If you're really familiar with ventilation, hypoxemia, and hypoxia, then this should be old hat to you. Pulse oximetry is extraordinarily common in veterinary practice. It's also extraordinarily common for when we monitor when we monitor patients under anesthesia. And obviously, you can use it on yourself and people during COVID did too. So there's another tie-in and use of pulse, uh, pulse ox. All right. This is Dr. Panarello. This is the Clinical Science Podcast. Thank you. I'll see you again soon.